Good morning, everybody. Um, my name is Gary. I, I probably failed to introduce myself before. I am one of the elders here. And it's my privilege this morning um, to bring God's word to you today. And I'm so excited about the word that God has given me um, to, to give to all of us today because it, it just lines up with everything that's gone through this sermon. The testimonies, the baptisms, the songs that were sung. God has got a message for us today that if we would actually listen and tune our ears to him, he wants to talk to you. And uh, it's such a precious thing um, when he speaks. But it's even more precious when you listen and respond. It's such a precious, precious thing. This morning, we're continuing in our series, um, Simon Peter. And this series is a study, or a character study, if you like, on the man Simon Peter. He's not schizophrenic, he doesn't, he's just got two names. He's actually got other names, but um, we'll just stick with that for this session today. This morning I get the privilege of actually bringing a message that is so heavenly laden with the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Every sermon we preach, every sermon, every time you come to church, the gospel should be preached. There's no doubt about that. But for whatever reason, the way this service has worked out today, it gets underlined, bolded, exclamated. Um, the gospel is just being preached throughout, and this sermon is no exception to that. But what is the gospel? Because we, if for those of us that have been around church for more than two minutes, we kind of understand what it is and we're a bit more familiar. But for those of us that are maybe visiting, don't understand what it is, because you've heard a lot of it already. The gospel in simple terms is that through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who was the Son of God, we can be reconciled with God and receive full forgiveness of our sin and failings and the removal of guilt and shame. That is the gospel in a nutshell. Every one of us can experience salvation by grace through faith alone. It's not restricted to a tribe. It's not restricted to a race. It's not restricted to males or females. It's not restricted to children or adults. Or it's only something old people do because they've got to get things in order before they exit. It's actually for every one of us. The gospel is not a respect of persons. It is inclusive of everybody. No one is excluded. That is the beauty and the power of the gospel. It is just open, armed for all. The gospel can't be added to, and there's nothing you can or have to do to earn it. You don't deserve it. None of us deserve it. It's a free gift that Jesus gladly gave so that we could be reunited and reconciled with his Father, God. This morning we're going to be looking in Galatians and unpacking two significant characters as we go through this morning's um, sermon. These characters were right there when the gospel message was first preached who both laboured tirelessly to bring the gospel message to both the Jews and the Gentiles. Now this morning I'm going to talk a lot about the Jews and the Gentiles. And if you're thinking, well, there's only two nations, um, where do I fit? If you're not Jewish, you fit in the Gentile camp. Is that clear? <laughs> That's really Gentile as all the rest of us. <laughs> okay, so if you're not sure, if you're not Jewish, you know you fit in the Gentile camp. The two characters we're looking at, Simon Peter, again, that's one person, not two. And then there's Paul, or Saul, as he's also known, also just one person. Both of whom were apostles. 
That meant that they were called by Jesus in the flesh and Jesus called them and sent them out to preach the gospel and build his kingdom on the earth. Both had very different backgrounds and experiences with Jesus, but both ended up being pivotal in establishing the church and the New Testament gospels that we read today. Looking at Paul first, in today's story we see that Saul was the name he was, we're first introduced to him as. Um, he was an apostle sent out by Jesus to preach the gospel and establish the church as mentioned, but Saul was his Jewish name. He was born a Roman citizen, um, which is why he also was known by the name Paul. That was his Gentile name. Um, apparently Paul also means little. I don't know what that refers to, but... Paul was highly educated, growing up in Jerusalem and trained by a teacher who was part of the highest Jewish religious leaders. It was like he got the top, top schooling. He knew the Jewish law, all 613 of them, and he could recite the first books of the Bible um, by heart by the time he was a teenager. Paul was not a disciple or a follower of Jesus prior to his death or resurrection. Paul didn't even meet Jesus prior to his death or resurrection. But Paul did have a miraculous conversion post-Jesus' death via a direct encounter with Jesus whilst on the road to Damascus. Now, what was Paul doing on this road to Damascus? Paul was doing what he did very well. He was hunting Christians. He was on the way to Damascus to actually seek out, arrest, and imprison with a view to kill them, Christians. He hated Christians. It was his, it was his life's work to actually... Um, quell the uprising of Christianity that Jesus had created and he hated Jesus the most. But from this encounter that Paul had on the road to Damascus, he was radically transformed and went from pursuing Christians to actually becoming one. It was a radical transformation. God appeared to him and it was such a bright light that he actually fell on his face and he couldn't actually look up because it was so bright in fact it was that bright that he was blind for three days following that experience and as he laid there with his head down Jesus who was appearing to him said soul soul why do you persecute me and why are you coming after my church but in that time there was a miraculous transformation because of the gospel message that Jesus relayed to him that Paul was transformed and then from that day, um, many churches through Paul's ministry were created. Many books of the New Testament were written. In fact, the book we're going to be looking in today in Galatians is uh, a book that he wrote. Brings us to our second character that we're going to be talking about. And he's the theme of our series at the moment, and that's Simon Peter. Uh, a lot's been said about him in past, um, past messages already, so I'll try not to go over the same ground but Simon was also Jewish he grew up not in Jerusalem he grew up in the region of Galilee in the town of Bethsaida uh, Bethsaida well I can't speak now Bethsaida thank you on the coast of the Sea of Galilee I knew someone would have it um, Simon was his Hebrew name because he was Jewish obviously he did have a younger brother named Andrew who together they grew up to be fishermen but had very little education, very separate education, very different life to what Paul had had. It was through Andrew, actually, that Simon was first told about Jesus of Nazareth, 
meeting him one day on the shores of the Sea of Galilee after having a, a horrible night fishing, catching nothing, to Jesus finding him doing this miraculous catch of fish that almost sunk the boat with how many fish that he caught, changing Simon's life forever. At this point, Jesus called Simon to follow him and he said he would make him fishes of men if he would follow him. Well, Simon did, making him one of the first disciples that Jesus called when he started his ministry. Jesus was the one that actually gave um, Simon the name Peter, which is Aramaic for rock, or, and then it's, it's pronounced Kephas. And he eventually became the leader of the 12 disciples. But although Jesus gives Simon the name Peter, or rock, we often see in Peter's life his ability to live up to it was often in doubt in the Gospels. There's many examples of Peter's life where he failed. There was the time when, um, gone from a real high, where Peter had confessed that Jesus was the Messiah and, and Jesus responded, only my Father in heaven has told you this. To go from that high to then saying something else where Jesus said, I rebuke you, Satan, get behind me. That's an extreme. Peter fell asleep in the garden. Jesus said, pray. And Peter couldn't stay awake. Then when the Roman soldiers come to arrest Jesus when they're in the garden prior to his crucifixion, he just randomly decided to attack one of the, one of the centurions cutting off their ear um, and just was completely um, unexplainable. But this was the rashness of Peter. Probably the saddest and the thing that um, relates to me the most about Peter is his denial of Jesus, where he denies him on three separate occasions as he was foretold by Jesus at the Last Supper. However, all is not less lost with Peter because Jesus reinstated Peter. It's a beautiful scene because he actually, it's almost the same spot where he first met Peter and that's on the Sea of Galilee while Peter was fishing. And he says to him, do you love me? Peter answered yes. And he said, well, feed my sheep. Now, the interesting thing about that is almost like he asked him three times, which is almost like he was annulling the three denials and closing them off. This actually communicates Jesus' confidence in the selection of Peter and him um, and, and making him the head of the early church. He, Peter was regarded as one of the pillars, the three pillars of the early church, um, quite significant, even though he failed so many times. Peter's known because he helped establish the church in Jerusalem, which was later led by James, Jesus' brother, so that Peter could go and preach the gospel message throughout the land. As already stated, Peter had the propensity to misjudge the room and get things horribly wrong. Um, in today's passage we're looking at, he'll actually demonstrate that pretty good. We are going to look at three specific occasions where Peter and Paul met. And like I said, not all of them were good. Um, but let's get into it. In our first meeting in Galatians 1, we learn about the first time the two met. And this was three years after Paul's conversion. So Paul had his miraculous conversion on the Damascus Road. Um, Paul didn't run off to the disciples after meeting Jesus because they probably would have run away because uh, he was literally trying to kill them. Um, but for three years, what it says is that Paul actually went off 
to Arabia. It doesn't say what he did, but he was gone for a period of three years. And scholars say that it was a time where Jesus was actually speaking to him and discipling him and teaching him and teaching him the gospel and giving him the gospel message. Because remember, Paul didn't get to walk with Jesus. But he goes to Jerusalem after three years and he meets Peter and he actually spends 15 days with him. And that was their first encounter and it was a pretty pleasant time, but you're not going to learn much and there's not going to be much information change hands. It's just really getting to know each other and, and, and probably, I'm sure, I'm sure um, Peter spent most of those days just trying to work out whether this guy's for real or whether he's actually going to arrest me and take me away. The second meeting we find in Galatians 2, and this is where uh, we're going to be spending most of our time this morning. In this occasion... In this meeting, it wasn't a social meeting. It wasn't a social visit like it was um, the first time. In fact, this meeting took place 14 years after the first one. So a lot of time had gone, gone past before Peter actually, um, Paul actually went back to Jerusalem. Uh, and, and you know what? This actually this testifies to the transformation of Paul. Paul attests as being the Jew of Jews, there was none better than him. There was none more religious than him. And for a Jew, Jerusalem was a, was a high point. Every year you would go to the temple. But for 14 years, he didn't go there. That's how much of a transformation the gospel made in his life. And he actually became this new person where he didn't go back to his old life. He put aside it and it became this new person. As far as Paul was concerned, his business was in Antioch. That's where his church was in Galatia. And preaching and teaching the gospel to those that God had called him. But there was a problem. A problem was developing in the church in Antioch that was there. But Paul thought he had a pretty good grip on it and he didn't need what the other disciples of view or thoughts on it. And he was confident in his training that because Jesus had actually trained him. And he believed that he was able to resolve the matter without the need to go to Jerusalem. In Acts, we can actually get a bit, more, bit better of a picture of uh, what had happened in the church at the time. Which basically a message was being taught that was a direct distortion of the gospel message that Paul had learnt and taught. It was a message that was actually going away from the gospel. It was adding to it. It had distorted it. It had, it had corrupted it. It says the church in Antioch had some people come in that had started teaching that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. With this teaching, Paul is burning hot mad. I mean, he is, he is mad as a cut snake. He just wants to take people down for this blasphemy, if you like, this false teaching, this, this um, distortion of the gospel that was actually putting people back into chains and putting people back into um, um, legalism and things that were just completely anti what the gospel message is all about. We see Paul eventually decides to go to Jerusalem because, not because he concedes, but he actually has a revelation from God. And because of that revelation, he obeys God and he actually goes there taking along Barnabas, who was a fellow Jew and companion of Paul, as well as Titus, who was actually a Gentile convert. Uh, most of, the, most of the, the church is said in Antioch is to be Gentiles. It's a very Gentile nation and, and not many Jews there, though there were some. So when Paul gets to Jerusalem, he has a private meeting with the leaders of the church because he wanted to present the gospel message that he'd been preaching to the Gentiles. And he did this 
for a couple of reasons. And one is he wanted to make sure that they were still aligned, that their hearts were still preaching the same gospel, that they were still preaching the same gospel that he was preaching. You remember, 14 years had gone by. There could have been some interesting deviations that had uh, crept in. But from this meeting, it confirmed to Paul that the gospel message as he knew it was still being preached and upheld in Jerusalem and that these men that had come to Antioch were not representatives of the Jerusalem church. It is actually said that he took Titus along because he was a Greek, uncircumcised, and he wanted to see what the leaders would do. And it says actually that he, that he was accepted and they didn't even challenge it. And so that was a, that was a sign to um, Paul that Peter and the, the leaders in the Jerusalem church were sticking to the true gospel, that they hadn't changed it as these men from Jerusalem had done. Paul left feeling reassured that he'd given, and he was given the right hand of fellowship. If, as people come into membership here, it's often said sometimes we'll extend the right hand of fellowship and, and allow you. It's a sign of saying that we, you're part of us, you're one of us. And this was actually really important because it showed that they were, they were aligned and they were of one heart and one mind. Both leaders in Jerusalem um, um, were preaching the same gospel. Peter was focusing his ministry, though, to the Jewish congregation and Paul was focusing his to the Gentiles. So who were these men that preached this circumcision gospel, as I've called it? Well, these men were known as Judaizers. They were stout Jewish believers. So they believed in Jesus, they'd accepted him, but they were really tied to their Jewish upbringing and the, and the Judaistic ways. And they couldn't shake their, shake their Judaism beliefs and wanted to add to the gospel message. See, their message of the circumcision gospel was a deviation of the true gospel message which says salvation by grace through faith alone. No works, nothing else. It deviated as it began to add to the gospel message by insisting that there was additional requirements to be saved. You might be thinking, why are we talking about circumcision in church? Um, and what's next? Um, brief history, circumcision was a strict Jewish practice that was established uh, with the Abra Abraham's covenant with God. Um, it's the physical act of circumcising a male child that's eight days old. It still goes on today in the Jewish religion. Um, but like many things in the Old Testament, Testament circumcision was a foreshadowing of things to come. That's why we don't practice it today. It's a big sigh of relief. Um, Paul refers to them as the circumcision party in verse 12. He taught that for Gentiles... To receive salvation, they had to first become like the Jews, you know, taking on Jewish law, which included circumcision, before they could be saved. The Judaizers believed that this because they had taken Abraham's importance, and it is important, Abraham. He's, he's a key figure in our, the history of the church. But they distorted it. See, Judaizers claimed that the only, only those who were Abraham's children would be included in the promises of God. And so, therefore, how could we Gentiles be included in salvation if we weren't Jews, because it's, 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 it's our mob, it's our group. The Gentiles couldn't be blessed to receive the inheritance or enter the kingdom of God unless they were part of the family that had received those promises. That is to become Jewish, because only Jews were considered part of the lineage. And this was a complete and utter distortion, because if we look at Abraham for a minute and, and faith, in Galatians 3, Paul says, 
in verse 6 to 7. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. It's faith that makes us sons of Abraham. Paul was reminding us that from the beginning, God worked through faith to bring righteousness. Before the law, before circumcision was commanded, the Lord declared Abraham as righteous. Now, Abraham did get circumcised, but he was declared righteous before that happened. Abraham believed a word of promise that God spoke, and as a result of that, faith, God declared him righteous. See, when God declares anything, it becomes true in the moment it's spoken. It doesn't change, doesn't deviate. So if Abraham was declared righteous in this moment, then righteousness simply cannot be a matter of law or circumcision. It cannot be about performance or acts or outward appearance or what we wear or where we go or what we eat, who we talk to, who we hang around. God is perfectly just and fair. Amen? So if one man can be declared righteous without those things, without circumcision, without the law, then, there are no, then they are unnecessary for any man. That we don't need the law. And there's a reason we don't need that, and we'll get to that. This brings us to the third time Peter and Paul actually had an encounter. Again, still in Galatians 2, we learn that Peter had actually become a part of the church in Antioch. He'd left Jerusalem. Some say it may have been because of the persecution that was going on in Jerusalem that he decided to move to to Antioch. But it it would appear that he'd seemingly become a part of the congregation. He was quite at home in this house of Gentiles, um, living like a Gentile, eating bacon sandwiches, doing all sorts of things that he couldn't do, that the Lord didn't permit. Including sharing in the communion meal, which was a very special time. It's a lot different to the way we do communion. It's probably more like the potluck dinner that's on tonight, um, where we gather and actually share everyone's food unto the Lord, fellowshipping, encouraging one another. But what we see in Galatians 2 verse 12 is the, the return of the Judaizers. This group of men come back, um, but when they came back, what we learn is that Peter was drawn into their teaching and began to separate himself. This is Peter, the apostle, the pillar of the church, began to separate himself from the Gentile brothers and sisters that he was fellowshipping with in that church because he feared the circumcision party. He feared those Jewish brothers. And as a result of his fear, he began to, like I said, separate and just close in ranks and created this um, division, if you like, and separation within the church, which resulted in the rest of the Jewish believers within the church actually joining him, acting hypocritically, even causing Barnabas, who was a, who was a, a dear associate of Paul, to be led astray by the hypocrisy. This is the effect that this had on the church. This created a standoff between Paul and Peter, Like I said before, Paul was red-hot mad on this whole topic because he hated that it distorted the gospel that he knew and loved and preached. And he knew that it set people free. It says, Paul opposed Peter to his face. Very different church service. (laughs) He called him out very publicly in front of all. 
Because Paul knew the gospel message. He'd been discipled by Jesus. He understood it. He preached it. He lived it. And he was not one who feared man or needed their approval. Paul was his own man. He was God's man. A bit different to Peter, actually. Before you think Peter is being treated harshly here, let me just say Peter actually knew better. Peter, of all people, knew that there was no difference um, no difference to the Jew and Gentiles when it came to faith. In fact, Paul suggested in his text that Peter was living like a Gentile, which probably included eating foods, as I've already mentioned, and partaking in activities that the law of Moses would have prohibited. But Peter also knew firsthand that Gentiles were sought after by God and that they didn't have to be Jews to become or become Jewish, that the gospel was for everyone. And he had this experience uh, in Joppa one day where he was um, just spending some time and his vision appeared to him of this, um, this blanket falling down and there was things on there that, that Jews weren't allowed to eat or touch or have anything to do with. And God said to him, Peter, don't call anything common that I say is clean. And he was actually pointing to the Gentiles as well as what was on the blanket. And what we see from that as well is at the same time, there was this Roman centurion called, um, centurion called Cornelius who was in another town and he actually had a vision because he was a God-fearing Christian man and he told him about Peter and he summoned for him and Peter come to his household and Peter preached the gospel and the Holy Spirit fell upon the household of Cornelius and they all become saved. And they were Gentiles. In calling Peter out, Paul challenges Peter in verse 14. He says, if you live like a Gentile, sorry, if you're a Jew who lives like a Gentile and not like a Jew, because he wasn't living like a Jew anymore, he wasn't abiding by the law and everything else, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Because this is what the Judaizers were saying. You can't live as a Gentile, you must be a Jew. You must practices and um, don't cut the hair and all that sort of stuff. In other words, Peter, you're being hypocritical as you're siding with the Judaizers and supporting a different gospel message completely. But you don't even live that way. But you expect these Gentiles to. Paul goes on to remind Peter that both while he and Peter are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners as the, the law of Moses would declare, that they know that we have not been justified by the work of the law, but through the faith, their faith in Jesus Christ. So we who have also believed in Jesus Christ, we too are justified in faith in Christ alone and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. You cannot earn salvation. The law is said to be like a torch in the hand of a plumber. Helps you find a blockage, but it's not real good for fixing it. In verse 17, Paul asks, if setting aside the law is a sin, as the Judaizers teach, what does this say about Christ? Because his gospel teaches us to sin then, because his gospel says, don't do the law anymore. You're free from it. You're free from those shackles. You're free from those burdens. You're free from those bondages. You're no longer bound by it. The gospel says we cannot be justified by the law, so we must seek justification another way. The Judaizers say that setting aside the law of Moses promotes sinful behaviour in Christians. They were using it as a way of sanctifying you, to keep you in tow, to control you, 
to make sure that you actually did the right thing, to stay in your lane. Paul shifts gears and says that to turn back to living under the law after receiving justification from Christ is actually sin. To go back to that old way, to go back to the life of the Judaizers that they were promoting in their gospel was actually to commit sin. Because that's everything that Jesus came to fulfill and take away. That is not the gospel message. To take on the law again. Because that suggests that what Jesus did wasn't quite enough. He didn't bleed enough. He didn't have enough tears in his flesh. He didn't quite do it properly. And that is so far from the truth that it's almost disgusting to think about. The Judaizers will have it that we still have a part to play in our salvation and that is the furthest thing from the truth. There's nothing you and I can do to earn our salvation, to attribute our salvation. In verse 20 and 21, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Looking at verse 20 there, as believers, we've been crucified with Christ. Spiritually speaking, of course. Our old self was put to death with Christ on the cross. Christ was Paul's and our representative in that moment. Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. His life is now guided by Christ, living in, living in him by the Spirit. And that is true for us. It's true for us that have actually accepted and come to that place of accepting Christ and taking the gospel on. As Christians, you know, we're now free to live for God. There's a liberty we can enjoy in Christ. First and foremost, it's a freedom to serve God. We're unconstrained by tradition, customs and legal restrictions. Nothing stands in our way. Not food, calendar, festival or associations. We are free to serve him. Not in sin, but in joy and in pleasure. What the Judaizers were proclaiming was self-righteousness. That we have to do something to be saved and even to be sanctified, to become better Christians, more Christ-like. This is not Christianity. That is legalism and self-righteousness at its worst. As I begin to close this morning, you know, before we judge Peter for his brain fade, which, if really knowing Peter and if we've learned anything, we shouldn't really be surprised or alarmed by it. If anything, it actually warms my heart because it says I've got hope. This was typical Peter, one I totally relate to. It said earlier that Peter feared the circumcision party. Peter had a problem with fearing man, and that's something that I relate to. Somebody shared it in the testimony there today. I, you know, I'm, I'm an elder within this church. I've been saved since I was 10. That doesn't make me any better. Just knows I know better. <laughs> it doesn't make me better. It just means I know better. But I've been in my current job. I changed jobs about nine months ago. You know, it took me six months before I told anyone I was a Christian. Not that I was ashamed. It just wasn't the right time. Didn't come up. To the point where I 
God got a hold of me and said, no, you need to settle this issue once and for all. It happens to the best of us. I've said and done some stupid things and acts um, that I'm not proud of. So I'm not judging Peter. (laughs) He encourages me. But you know, we don't have a part to play in our salvation. God specifically designed it this way so that no man may boast. What I love about the gospel is God made a propitiation for our sins. And what this means, this is such a beautiful picture, if you'll get this. You see, Christianity, our our religious belief or our Christian belief, is where the God we serve that requires a sacrifice from his worshippers, us, in order to be made right, the only thing we can offer is actually provided for us by the very same God. I can't grow it, I can't make it, I can't breed it, I can't buy it, I can't steal it, I can't borrow it. I have nothing that can make me right with God. But when we go to God and I say, I wanna be made right, He says, that's okay, I've got what you need. Here's my son who died a horrible, horrible death in our place to fulfill the law, not to go back to it. We have no part in our salvation. This is the good news. (laughs) This is the hope we have. This is the gospel. Because it's salvation by grace through faith alone. The beauty of the gospel is not just the message though, but it's how it pursues you. How Christ pursues you. If you're a Christian here today, think for a minute when and where you were when you first met Jesus. Have you ever thought what had to occur? Maybe you had to work at Gillis Plains Woolworths. Maybe it was a bad circumstance where you met God. I'm not saying God orchestrated bad things in your life, but He will take advantage of that situation to reveal Himself to you because He loves you. He come and hunted you He found you. Jesus went after you strategically, specifically, patiently, and very determined. He was focused in his pursuit of you. Don't ever lose the value of that. You are so important to him. God wants you more than we'll ever want him. He doesn't need us. We need him. But he wants us. I said earlier that circumcision was a foreshadowing of things to come. You know, it's always been God's intention that the physical outward act of circumcision would always be replaced because one, only something men could do. So how did that cater for the ladies? Two, he wasn't interested in what happens outward. He was interested in the heart. And he talks about in the Old Testament that he would replace it one day with the circumcision of the heart where there'd be a cutting away of these things that hinder us and create a barrier between us and God. All Jesus wants is our heart. He knows if He can get our heart, He can then purify us. Not physically, but spiritually through the circumcision of the heart by cutting away the very thing that separates us. 
You know, the sad reality is, is that we're not much different to Peter in many ways. And that we forget salvation by grace through faith alone. And we add to the gospel message. We revert back to legalism or rules or even doctrines, measuring people's salvation against their performance or perceived views and things. And we start measuring people up or where do they fit? That's not the gospel. This is the perfect definition of self-righteousness. It's one of the oldest patterns of behaviour in the book. I mean, literally in the Bible, if we go back to the Garden of Eden and we see Adam and Eve after their sin, what do they do? First thing they do is they try to make themselves righteous before God because they were covered in sin and shame. They sewed together these measly fig leaves thinking this will be right. God won't notice a thing. I'll be right. I can stand before God because I've cleaned myself up. not realising that it would take the death of something in order to make them right before God, which they could not do. They'd never killed a thing at that point. God had to make a sacrifice, then fashion clothing for them out of the hide of that animal so that sin and shame could be covered. Sound familiar? Maybe you're guilty of practising self-righteousness or even imposing it on others like Peter and the Judaizers were guilty of, and we can do it so easily. Practitioner or imposer of a false gospel, whatever camp you fall in, maybe before you go today, take some time as we sing the song very shortly and spend some time talking to God and get things right and clear things up. Maybe perhaps you're here or you're watching online and if you're not even giving your heart to the Lord or experienced salvation by faith alone or don't even know this Jesus spoken of today and you're riddled with guilt and shame, or maybe you think you're actually pretty good. I'll tell you that the Bible says that all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that no man is good, only God. And that's not to contend you, that's just welcome to the club. That's who we are. But if God's calling you this morning, if you can hear or feel something tugging at your heart or something's going on and you're like, I don't know what's going on, respond to that this morning. All He wants is your heart. Start with that today. Leave here able to walk and talk with Him and learn more. You're not in this place by accident. None of us are in this place by accident. God is pursuing you. He continually pursues you. God has spoken to you this morning. Use the time whilst the next one plays. Talk to God. If you don't know how, there'll be people up the front here that would love to pray with you and show you and guide you through that process. Thank you.